Teaching is our passion. We at the Wall Street Skinny are proud to announce that we've joined the advisory board for the iConnections Funds for Teachers initiative, focused on supporting the Ron Clark Academy and its pioneering teaching methods. Through Funds for Teachers, iConnections is dedicated to empowering educators nationwide by providing access to RCA's professional development opportunities. Events are being organized in major cities throughout the year to fundraise and support this incredibly important cause. All proceeds from these events will be directly donated to the Ron Clark Academy, specifically to financially aid teachers so they can participate in RCA's groundbreaking training programs. Please click on the link in our show notes to register for an event in the city nearest you. This is The Wall Street Skinny, a podcast devoted to exploring the financial services industry and making the world of Wall Street accessible to everyone. Hi, friends. Welcome back to The Wall Street Skinny. I'm Jen. I'm Kristen. And today, we are back with our amazing guests from last week, Rahul Kulas and Julie Yoon, to discuss a completely different topic, which is project finance. And project finance is a super interesting area on Wall Street. We get a ton of questions about it. Well, yeah, because literally, like, nobody knows what it is. Like, it sounds like (laughs) it's just like, oh, you're financing projects. Cool. But it actually means something very specific. And so we're going to explore exactly what that very specific thing is. (laughs) That's right. And we're also going to get into the theme of mentorship and loyalty in the business today. Because as you all probably gleaned from last week's episode, Rahul is an incredible teacher and mentor. And some of the stories you're going to hear today will absolutely Mm -hmm. blow your mind. And Mm -hmm. as always, we are two lifelong friends with a combined 25 years of experience working and teaching on Wall Street here to give you the skinny on the world's most competitive and high-paying careers and to also answer all the questions that you've always had about finance but have been too afraid to ask. Okay, so Kristen, talking about mentorship, because Kristen, you were lucky enough to work with Rahul, who again, seems like the world's best mentor and teacher. You know, we're going to have these conversations today with Rahul, Julie, and David, who is their third partner, who's also going to jump on today. It was kind of funny when we were actually recording this. It was like, surprise, there's a new person here in the middle of the room. Like, so you guys will hear that. And I mean, whatever. It was an awesome opportunity to speak with David as well. But to give you guys some context on how having good mentors can literally make or break your career. Okay, true story. Last night, it's, I'm, I'm going to be turned 40 this year, okay? I had a nightmare about working for my old boss, okay? Like, <laughs> that is how crazy it is. I have not seen nor spoken to this individual in for the better part of 11 years. And I had a nightmare last night that I, I had somehow, like, been on vacation this whole time, like, for 11 yeah, yeah. years and, like, forgetting to go into work. And I went in and I... I like didn't have the right screen set up or whatever. And when a client used to call in for a trade, if you didn't have the right screens up and you had to like navigate to the page, you'd call the trader for a quote and they don't always quote you the entire price, right? So for example, if you're quoting treasuries, let's say, and a bond is trading at, I don't know, 101.3 plus, they'd be like the plus, Mm -hmm. 
And mm-hmm. so if you're not looking at the instrument and what the price is that it's trading at, you're like, the plus. And you don't know if it's three plus, four plus, eight plus, whatever it might be, right? And similarly, you know, in spreads, it could be like they might quote the quarter or like down an eighth or whatever it is. So I like couldn't find the right screens and a client was calling and they were like, what's the plot? You know, it was just, it was one of those, you know, like those nightmares you have still about school where you like didn't hand in the final yeah. paper or you forgot to study for the I final have, exam. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I, I've had many, uh, it's the most random thing. I'll have these nightmares that I haven't been keeping up with the homework for some class. And then it's like, but I've done the other ones, but I haven't done this one class. And then Uh it's like, oh my God, like, am I taking it? And I I mean, yeah, it's weird how like these things, as you put it, we're 40. Like, why am I having nightmares about school? I've been in school in like 20 years. Although you freaked me out when you told me you had a nightmare or maybe not a nightmare, a dream that I was in labor. I was like, no, 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 no. That's not. I did. Oh yes. Listeners, true story. I had a very specific, very vivid dream that Kristen was in labor. And for whatever bizarre reason, you had like asked me to be one of your doulas. People probably don't even like, know what that is, but yeah. yeah. A doula is like a real estate agent for when you're given birth. It's like yeah. Yeah, 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 <laughs> they yeah. hold your hand through the process. But yeah, so I don't know, Kristen. Maybe that was I don't know. You've been like no, 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 no. You've been like communicating through telepathy with our nanny. Our nanny wants us to have a fourth kid, I think, because it extends the amount of time that she's hanging out. She's oh, like, you but need that's a boy. So sweet that she loves your family so much that she wants. Oh, that's really that's that's a wonderful. No, it's nice. Thing. She's like, I'm but she's so like, John needs a boy. <laughs> Oh my god. Like goodness. he likes being a girl dad. We'll end up having twin girls if we end up having a fourth. It'll be like five. It'll be a surprise. So no, like no. <laughs> Which is always oh, what happens. People try to go for like the other gender. You can never no. Like it just <laughs> Okay, well let's hop into our conversation with Rahul and Julie before uh <laughs> before we get carried away here. <laughs> All right, we'll bring them on. All right, so we are so excited to be joined here by uh, Julie Yoon and Raul Kulas, who are two people who have a very special place in my heart. Julie uh, was an analyst with me back in my time in Converts, doing share repurchase and like crazy equity derivatives and call spreads and all that kind of fun stuff. So at some point, you'll have to explain that to us. And Raul was my VP who I worked under in project finance. And so they ultimately came together and have been working together now for like the last I don't know, 14 years or something. I take a little bit of credit for that. And so Raul and Julie, can you guys start by just giving us a little bit of your bios and you can get into as much detail or as little as you want, but let's start with Raul and then we can turn it over to Julie. It's We're so delighted to be here and Kristen, right back at you. You're very special to us and Julie and I have been working together now since since you introduced us. So it's, wow. it's been a long time and we, we talk about you often and are grateful for you. But uh, really quick, my background, I started in finance after doing my undergrad in engineering and my master's in computer science. I had zero finance experience and I started as an analyst at, at Goldman. Then I moved over to Morgan Stanley. What group did you start in at Goldman, if you don't mind me asking? So I worked in uh, two different groups. I started in municipal finance for the first year. Oh, munis. Munis, nice. yeah. Not to defend anyone in munis, mm-hmm. but that was the longest year of my life. <laughs> My dad was a Muni guy, and I we always we're gonna have him on here eventually. But I always joke that that episode will be the guaranteed cure for insomnia. <laughs> it, it, they worked really hard, and it's very intense, and it's sort of siloed. So I moved from there to a group called Commodity Financing, which was sort of a competitor group to Project Finance in that they made investments, lent capital to oil and gas companies or power companies. So I moved from that group to Morgan Stanley and Project Finance. 
stayed there, met Kristen, met Julie, met my other business partner, David, and the three of us have been working I met your together. wife, right? That's right. Jen and I both met our, our now husbands through finance as well, so just had to throw that out there. <laughs> Um, my bio is pretty short and simple. <laughs> so I started my career in equity capital markets at Morgan Stanley in 2007. And unlike Rahul, I majored in finance and math at MIT. So I did have a finance background. I joined Project Finance because of Kristen introduced me to the group in 2009 and stayed with Dave and Rahul ever since. All right. So I'd love to talk a little bit about what project finance is. We get a lot of questions about project finance. And so I think it'll be helpful just to kind of walk people through a little bit of the basics. What are some things that you think people should know about? And by the way, I guess I'll rewind for a second. I remember in my interview with you way back in the day, you had me model out a bond versus a loan for, I think it was like a power plant project. And it was something that was very specific to project finance, different from traditional private equity in the sense that when I went into sponsors, like they did it differently. Sure. So maybe I'll start with just a quick overview of what project finance is. Project finance, as the name would imply, it's financing a specific project. Um, A project is usually an asset with a very specific set of cash flows. Okay, wait, that automatically is going to confuse some of Uh-oh. our, like when you say a project is an asset, right? Already, okay. I can hear the wheels turning in my mind when I'm 19 years old thinking about this, being like, what the hell does that Perfect. mean? Perfect. So let's, let, let's sort of rewind then and say, let's define what a project is. So a project is literally anything that you build for a purpose that will generate revenue in the future. So examples of projects would be power plants, oil and gas fields, if you will, mm-hmm. toll roads, bridges, all of those could qualify as projects. You have solar and wind farms, refineries. So when we talk about project financing, it really started with the concept of how do you get these large, gigantic infrastructure and natural resource projects done with financing that doesn't require the overall company to borrow money against their corporate balance sheet. And question on that, because when you talk about toll roads, immediately my mind goes to munis, where Mm -hmm. you said you started off. So what's the difference between project finance and municipal finance when it comes to something like a toll road, which sounds like a public works project that would fall under that umbrella? So it's it's a great question. And a lot of financing toll roads has converged into, it could have been done with munis, it could have been done with project finance. It's now sort of merging a little bit. The way I'd, I'd explain it would be, When a toll road is financed using municipal financing, it usually is an entity that has some form of a government sponsorship that is stepping up and saying, hey, I'm responsible for this. So I'm going to issue bonds, the bonds will be rated, and then effectively you get paid back. With a project financing, you'd actually have a forecast for specifically what the cash flows would be over the next 20, 30 years or whatever the life of the asset is. So what the tolls will be. What the tolls would be. (laughs) And then you say that, everything has to be paid back in that lifespan from the cash flows off that toll road. So what I would say is that what you just brought up with munis and toll roads is exactly the same as power plants for corporates that are trying to build power plants. So if I'm the CEO of a power company, I have two choices. If I want to build a power plant using my balance sheet, I can issue corporate bonds so or corporate debt. Oh, I'm a single B-rated entity, so I'll issue single B-rated debt, but that will impact my overall credit rating because I'm issuing more debt to finance this power plant. Yep. However, another alternative is project financing, where you say, I'm going to go and I'm going to create a separate entity. That entity will effectively own this eventual power plant. I will raise money 
that the only recourse of the lenders will be to that one entity. That power that plant. That power plant. That you're right. building. So yep. maybe even stepping back further, debt is basically a contract between one party giving money to another party who promises to return it under some conditions. Mm-hmm. Right? And with project finance, it really is, I'm going to give you money and in return, you're going to follow all these rules, governance, et cetera, that you wouldn't ordinarily have to have in a corporate financing. But in this particular case, since the lender only has access to that one asset, it's a lot more strict. That makes sense. I never knew that before. See, I already learned something completely brand new. And, and again, <laughs> if you're whatever, a IPP, like an independent power producer, and you have your corporate debt and the company goes bankrupt, you're not going to necessarily get the actual assets, the power plant, because there's debt that's issued from that. Because the power plant was siloed elsewhere mm-hmm. as a completely separate entity financed right. by different lenders, potentially, yeah. than the lenders who have underwritten the debt at the corporate level. That's right. Yeah. Cool. What to me was so fascinating is if someone is interested in going into project finance, you do end up learning about actually like a whole bunch of different industries because in the power plant space, it's not just power plants, but it's sort of the whole power ecosystem. And I remember learning about like the spark spread and how the price of power is set. And then there's the renewables aspect and like all the little tax incentives, the transportation industry with like utilities and how that works, you know, transmission lines. And then there's the commodity space, like you were talking about with like the the oil fields, like you learn about this whole world that you wouldn't have otherwise known about. I feel like I learned the most in project finance and actually converts. I learned a lot of converts, but like a lot more than actually when I went into financial sponsors, because it was all just like cookie cutter. Like you have an LBO model and it's like, cool. Versus when you were in project finance, there's all these different nuances to the specific industry and how to think about it and the specific project. And anyway, so this is a long way of saying project finance is pretty cool. Who is investing in these projects? Who is the typical investor who says, I'm interested in one of these carve outs? So you have the, the whole gamut of investors or sponsors. So you have traditional private equity. You also have corporates and strategics that will effectively want to build these projects. Sometimes you'd have a regulated utility who'd want to build a project. Now, they may not use project financing because they have other alternatives, but it would, it would uh-huh. be um, in the context of private equity sponsors. Oh, <laughs> this is David, who's a, a third partner. Hi. Hey, there we go. Hello. Now we can hear you. Yeah. How's it going? Uh, wonderful. And with you? Great. Excellent. Thank you so much for, for joining us. <laughs> uh, it's my pleasure. Yeah, we were just talking about the different investors in the project finance space. And one of the things I'm curious about, guys, is you said a private equity firm would be an investor in this. Can you explain a little bit more about what the model is of a private equity firm who would invest in this versus the private equity firm who's doing a conventional LBO model? What does private equity investment in project finance look like? There are infrastructure funds out there that are investing in private equity projects all the time. The construction of toll roads, the construction of power plants, the development of uh, specific projects. And the main difference between that and traditional private equity is in traditional private equity, you're going out and you're buying a company, you're levering it up and you're trying to fix it and improve it and grow it. But the difference with a project is first, you have a construction period and a development period. So Uh there are no cash flows through the first few years of the project while you're developing it. And to the degree that you have a contract with a contractor to develop the project, depending on the nature of that contract, you may have all sorts of risks or you may have 
eliminated risks that you are bearing in regards to the construction of that project. Then once the project is up and running, it's very difficult to take a business. The the parameters of that business tend to be very well defined, Mm i.e. you have a toll road, you've got a set of projections going forward. While it is always possible to build more roads and toll roads and add to it at the end of the day, it's a lot more complicated to do that than it is to grow a widget company yep. and and go out and get more customers and sell more widgets. You're dealing... I love that you said widgets, by the way. That's how I explain everything is widgets. <laughs> Good. So basically, you're dealing with a closed system in effect. And that's the difference between private equity for project financing and private equity for traditional businesses and corporations is that Mm -hmm. one tends to be an open system where you can go and add clients and you can add new businesses and you can- You go from making t-shirts to sneakers, whatever it might be, versus again, you're a toll road. It's a road. It's there. It's occupying physical space. People are driving on it and they pay you. Exactly. And the growth profile is different of each of them because you're dealing, again, with a fixed business as opposed to a dynamic, an organic business that can grow and do different things. I I don't know whether that addressed the question and answered it the way you were A hundred percent. Okay. No, that was really great. Thank you so much, David. My pleasure. David, do you want to talk about the the exits out of these businesses and how people actually capitalize on this? It's a very short answer, so it's easy to say, which is basically it's like any other uh, investment that a private equity fund would make. If I want to buy a refinery, if I want to buy a toll road, if I want to buy a power plant, I can do it. Mm-hmm. And it, essentially, the only real question that you face when you do that... and by the way, everyone does this. KKR will buy these businesses. TPG will buy these businesses. Infrastructure funds will buy these businesses. They all want to acquire assets as long as they can acquire them at a decent rate of return. And so there are multiple exit opportunities for any of these assets at the end of the day. And the only real dynamic that causes a change is, and this is what's so critical about projects versus companies, you can actually change the underlying risk profile of the project in many cases. So for example, when you buy a power plant, you could go to Morgan Stanley or you can go to Goldman Sachs and you can get a contract with the commodities group that physically delivers natural gas to that power plant and physically takes back electricity. And you can lock that up for five years, seven years, and basically create almost an annuity from that business and change the underlying risk of that actual business. That's what makes a buyout so interesting for those businesses is because you can basically schedule out a system where you can pay down a lot of debt. And then basically at the end of that hedge period, you can have a business that you can take forward and do all sorts of different things with. So the short answer, there are a lot of exit opportunities at all these places. And the financial structuring that you can engage in can really make things very, very attractive for PE firms. Got it. Cool. More than you ever wanted to know. No, no, no. no this the, is a, the, the, we're barely scratching the surface. Okay. Before you leave, actually, David, do you mind just quickly giving us your bio? Sure. I, you know, here's the thing. The thing is, is our backgrounds are very similar because <laughs> I've already worked with Rahul for almost 20 years and with Julie for whatever, 17 years. Um, Carlisle, we were there for 10 years, raised, you know, a lot of money there in two funds. 
Before that, uh, I was the uh, head of project and structured finance at Morgan Stanley. I was at Morgan Stanley for 12 years prior to entering into the structured financing and investments. I was in a PE fund within Morgan Stanley called Prince's Gate Investors. Oh, and never heard uh, of that. before that, uh, I was in the M&A group at Morgan Stanley. And before that, I was at Solomon Brothers, which no longer exists, both in New York and in Hong Kong. So cool. again, all sorts of different things and experiences. So That's cool. awesome. Okay, well, thank you guys so much. I appreciate it. Thanks no, for thank joining you for in. What a pleasant uh, surprise. Steal Julie and Raul for, for a couple hours. We appreciate no, 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 it. No, 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 Thank you. Take care. <laughs> and that actually brings us to the next question, which was about exits, because you guys obviously went to Carlisle um, from Morgan Stanley. And uh, again, I actually, I don't know all the details, but I assume it was an infrastructure fund. And correct me if I'm wrong, or you were starting like an infrastructure investing type platform at Carlisle. So you can obviously fill in the gaps there. But uh, I guess basically, like, what are some traditional exits from project finance for people who are listening and are interested in project finance and want to basically get an idea of where a career can go? Also, how did you navigate that exit? What was the process actually like saying, okay, I want to move up and out? So, and since it's 14 years, we can speak pretty freely about all the things that we had to be very hush-hush about when we left. So it was 2010. And David and I had been working together for about five years. And uh, we just felt, listen, it's time for us to go and do something where we had more control over capital allocation, risk-taking. This was also just after the global financial crisis. And what people may have forgotten is that at every major bank, credit committees, investment committees were changing very quickly. People were getting let go. People were moving. No one knew what risk the bank was going to be taking. No one knew, frankly, what risk they should be taking. We felt we knew the energy sector really well, the overall natural resources sector. And uh, at that moment in time, we felt we could go and raise our own independent fund. So David and I started thinking about that when Mitch Petrick, uh, that's a name Kristen and and Jen, you probably remember, Mitch ran all of uh, sales and trading at Morgan Stanley. And since the financial crisis, the previous two years, David reported into Mitch on a number of things, including a called a $4 billion tax equity book. So he knew us pretty well. By the way, tax equity is something that like, I never understood what the heck that thing was. <laughs> it was this group that was over to the side that did like crazy, I don't even know what they were doing, running the most insane models that I was like, I don't know what's going yeah, on there. They, they, they did some crazy things. Um, and then David eventually took over that book. And when we were looking at, at raising an independent fund, we talked to Mitch who had just surfaced at Carlisle. And it just felt like the right place, right time, because Mitch was looking for new strategies as head of credit at Carlisle. We were looking to do something that was more directly focused on us having a decision uh, on the investment strategy versus sort of an amorphous committee. So that's when sort of we decided to to move over. What happened was, so Mitch was at Morgan Stanley. He left, joined Carlisle. He had a non-compete and all sorts of things that were fairly uh, restrictive on him. So when he hired David and I, he needed to go and get approval from Morgan Stanley to have that happen. So we do this. And I think in Mitch's mind, it was, okay, we'll just hire an associate from Carlisle. Carlisle has all these great associates. We just get somebody from there. But, you know, we wanted to have Julie join us. And so Mitch was like, look, I can't bring another Morgan Stanley person because I've just gotten special approvals. So we can't give Julie a contract like we gave you guys. So David and I thought about it and we thought, okay, if we leave, then it triggers a non-compete because Julie's still an employee. So if we quit, she can't join us after. 
So we go to Julie and call her into a conference room. We were planning to quit on a, on a Friday. It's a Wednesday. We call her into the, the conference room and we say, listen, David and I are planning to leave uh, on Friday and we'd love for you to come with us, but there's some issues. We can't tell you where we're going. We can't tell you what we're going to be doing. We can't tell you what your title would be or what your compensation would be. But we'd love for you to come. Just trust it's us. It's like a professional yeah. kidnapping. Yeah. Completely, completely yeah. trust us. I think one thing also you said is it may not go well after one year. <laughs> then you're out of job. <laughs> oh, even, even better. Like way to really sell it. <laughs> but wait, I love this story because, I mean, to jump through all these hoops and this cloak and dagger career kidnapping exercise. The amount of loyalty within your group of three, that's phenomenal. In an industry that has a reputation for being so cutthroat, where everyone's just looking after themselves, that's, I love that story. I think that's really inspiring. What's, yeah, what's really great is, um, so we have this conversation in this conference room, and we say, Julie, we can't tell you anything, but we understand you may want to talk about it with, with whoever you need to talk about it with. She looks at us and says, is it in New York because I'm getting married or I just got married and my fiance is going to be in New York? I said, yes. She's like, okay. And we're like, what do you mean, okay? I love it, Julie. You're a woman She's after like, my okay, own heart. She's like, okay, I'm in. And so literally, she leaves the conference room, goes to her desk, types out a resignation letter, hands it to me, and then the whole team is told that Julie's leaving and today's our last day and we all go to Impanada Mama where we had Empanadas celebrate Julie's last day, <laughs> okay? Uh-huh. David and I quit on Friday, and we couldn't tell Julie anything, right? So on Sunday, we're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. go to 520 Madison, go to the 40th floor, and you'll ask for Janine Santorelli, who's the head of HR at Carlisle, and you're good, right? And <laughs> oh, and I think God. one of the interesting things about Julie's career, and we, we tell her this often, is Julie has had many jobs, has had only one interview in her, in her life, for her first job in Morgan Stanley. Way to go, Julie. That's what? the way to do it. Oh my goodness. Yeah. That's Dude. amazing. I think I'm asked by many junior people or college students who are looking to come into finance and ask me, how did you get onto buy side? You know? Mm-hmm. And I always have to say my story is very, very different. But you know what? At the core of your story, Julie, is the real theme that we talk about all the time on here that the people you meet and the relationships you build are the most powerful currency in this business. And that's why you keep rising through the ranks of this industry after doing only one interview. And that's mm-hmm. and that's uh, that's at the core of it, right? Which mm-hmm. I think is amazing. I think that's actually like one of those apocryphal stories where you're like, that doesn't happen. And it's like everyone is so focused on this is the path. And like for most people, yeah, the path is so cookie cutter laid out, which I think is very unfortunate. But a lot of times people end up getting where they are because of the people that they've met and the relationships that they've built. And uh, the other thing is like, there are really good people in the industry. And, you know, it's funny, like I remember meeting you, Raul, I think we were at some analyst bar thing. I was in I was in CDOs at the time. Remember we were talking and obviously we had the engineering connection. Mm-hmm. And when I it became very clear because everyone was getting laid off in CDOs, I'm like, shoot, I gotta, I gotta get out of here. And so I remember talking to you and I it was like the stars lined. I was like, A, you're so cool and so nice. You're an amazing teacher, which is like exactly what you want in a mentor. And project finance just felt like such a perfect fit because of my engineering background. So we went through the process and I remember you tried to give me an offer and there was like a hiring freeze and whatever. There was ultimately like a number of steps and I did join you guys because I remember thinking like, this is just the coolest group. 
the the point though is like it's the relationship that you meet with people when you are out at bars or through a friend who's working in the industry that's how people move you know and that's how you get the job yeah having the right everything else okay but it's the actual connections you make and you meet with people and like i said there are really great people in the industry and i i love to work with you both right back um, at you actually Kristen, to that point, can you tell your story about the guidance that Rahul gave oh, you yeah. about then making the next switch? <laughs> so yeah, I think in one of the early episodes, we talked about just how I moved around a lot. And when I joined you in Project Finance, Raul, I remember you basically warned me because so at Morgan Stanley, they had this program where you could apply to do a third year rotation into investment banking. And I remember thinking at the time, if I want to go into private equity, I need to get into investment banking. So I ended up getting an offer to go into the financial sponsors group, FSG with an IBD for my third year, which would be my fourth move. And you said to me, you were like, you've already moved three times. You really should rethink going into FSG. You should basically like... Like develop the relationship, stay put. And I mean, your career is long. Like, don't don't do that. And I was just such a sucker for learning new things. I mean, I love learning. Like, so I was like, no, but I really want to do that. And obviously it was not the smartest move. I ended up, I remember that year, I was so disappointed because I got a, a quite low tier. Now, rewinding a little bit, during that year, I'd also moved from converts and the MD at the time was not exactly very happy with me for that either. It made him look bad. And so in, I guess, the compensation meetings, when people get tiered, Raul, you were kind of my spokesperson, like a, a VP who was up against the likes of Ted Pick, who was now the current CEO, like he was in capital markets at the time. The thing is, is that politics is important and developing like strong relationships is so important. It's not just the work you do, but it's it's obviously who can also pull for you. And I just think it's such a testament to the relationships that you guys obviously had that, you know, Julie joined you when I left and you guys have just the most amazing connection now. You moved to Carlisle, you now have started a healthcare investing focused fund and, you know, we'll talk about that. But I just say all this because mentors are so important, but while it's it's so special, like it's also not that uncommon. So anyway, I guess if you have any kind of insights or anything you want to share. So, there's so much there to dunt back. I think there's so much serendipity, so many synchronicities in getting jobs. Mm. I think that the next level, what at least what I learned from my career was that once you get in, there's a choice. There's a choice on what you want to do with the people around. Do you want it to be transactional or do you want it to be relationship building? And I think it's conceptually, I think most people will say, oh, relationships, that's what that's what gets us through and all that. But then when you actually go back to when you're 24 or 25 and you're starting to say, wait a minute, you know, do I compete with everyone around? Do I try to maximize what's best for me versus do I have somebody to look out for me? It's a much more complicated decision. I think people obviously need to be gentle with themselves around the decisions they made in that earlier phase. You know, and I'd go back to you, Kristen, on the story you laid out on wanting to try different things. So to me, if I knew what I knew now, in terms of giving advice or mentoring, ultimately, you are very, very curious. You're probably one of the most curious people I'd work with. And the fact is that had you stayed, there would have been a part of you that always wondered, like, did I make the wrong decision because I left so much that I could have explored? So in some ways, I think that ultimately the role of a, a really good mentor is, is very simple. It's to actually reflect back to the person what their innermost desires are at that moment in time. Ooh, I like that. The practicality is that if I was to tell someone, hey, don't do this or do this. If they listen to it, it's not necessarily as much as we are mentors or people want to think that they're making a big difference. Ultimately, there's a personal conviction each person has to have in their decision-making process. So you can lead a young person astray by saying, oh, don't do this or take less risk or take more risk or whatever have you. But the thing is, right, like there is no right answer. For, for somebody who is not ready to take that risk, 
it just causes conflict in their mind to say, oh my God, go and take this crazy risk, right? And when I think about, you know, you said uh, about teaching, and I will say that without question, you're one of the best teachers I'd ever seen. I've told this story to so many people about how the universe aligns things sometimes where the person who's the best I've ever known in terms of teaching, structuring, training people, and, you know, an Excel ninja, you went on to teach how many hundreds or thousands of people can I just add one thing? I mean, I think I learned converts from Christine and the project what? finance from Christine. Yeah, I mean, you know, oh, that's fabulous. So, yeah, because I was doing great derivatives here, you know, share purchase. And then when they asked me to do take a more convertibles, Christine, you're the one who actually taught me everything that I need to Aww. do and convertibles. And then when I joined project finance, you're the one who taught me. Everything. Oh my God, that's like so. the nicest thing. And, you know, let, me, let me circle back to the comp committee and, and that part of it, because I think it's interesting. So it was, in fact, very accurate that in 2008, 9, 10, that period of time, capital markets, for example, would have a comp committee and you'd have all the analysts, literally, whether you're in equity capital markets, debt capital markets, whatever, you get in a room with all these people representing these analysts and you basically have to tear them into the top bucket to the bottom bucket, right? And based on that, you get paid and the, the you know, the top bucket gets this, the second, and you're not really discussing the details of the exact comp. You're just trying to put people in tiers and put them the top, bottom, whatever have you. I was a VP, and frankly, I was probably undertitled to be doing that, but I was also very aggressive and wanting to defend people I could. However, it is an unfair fight when you have, you know, at the time, Ted Pick was, I mean, he was only the head of equity capital markets, right? Only. But I mean, gosh, right? Still, how can you really go back and say, oh, this is, you know, somebody Ted Pick values, of course, that person. Ted may not even be in the room. It's not like Ted was bullying the group. It was yeah. just people just knew like, hey, we've got to take care of this person. So there was a level of like, how do you really compare somebody in project finance with equity syndicate? It's, it's an unfair process. And I think when you're thinking yeah. about you know, if anyone is trying to think about their career in terms of, you know, you obviously want to find good people, but I think it breaks down two components of the person, right? The first one is when you think about a mentor or somebody you want to work with, forgetting your mentor, just saying, who do I want to attach myself to? The two components are one is, is that person going to be going places? If that person is not growing, if that person's stagnant, it gets very hard to grow because there is no movement. Yeah. But the second thing is, if there's somebody who's upwardly mobile, and this is the, the judgment part of every young person's careers, will I add value to that person? And will that person value what I'm doing for them? And so yeah. what happens is oftentimes people will attach themselves to someone who does not view them as valuable or does not care, very transactional. There, there are a lot of people I know, good, smart people who will change jobs and leave all their junior people completely high and dry. Right. And so I think that has to be, when you think about your the early part of one's career, you're effectively making a bet or an investment, if you will, on the people that you're hitching your career to. And in some ways, I made that bet with David, and I think Julie made that bet with me. When we left to go to Carlisle, David was obviously going to be one of the fund heads. And I remember talking to him and saying, listen, I want to be like a deputy fund head or something because I just don't want a new person coming in and layering me. He looks me straight in the eye and says, no, we're going to be co-heads and we're going to be true partners. Wow. Right? I love that. And Fast forward to when we left Carlisle, we did that with Julie. We said, listen, now with the three of us, we're partners and we're equal partners. Wow. I love that. Right? And I think it's pay paying it forward. And you know, I think that's a big part of it. When you have that trust and you see people actually genuinely saying, this is not transactional, then it can last a yeah. long time. And what I would say is that yeah. it is a professional, a marriage in, in the same construct of there's so much that you need to keep working on and respecting people. And there are going to be challenges. There are going to be phases of difficulty. All of those things happen. But as long as you know that underlying values of the person are there, 
anything else can be worked out. And if it's transactional, it can't be worked out, right? If somebody's using you, it can't. And that's, I think, the decision a lot of people have to make when they say, gosh, I can move to a new place, get a, a nice bump in my compensation or a promotion or a title. The question is, well, can you forge that relationship in the way you want it to? I love that. And actually, sorry, can you talk a little bit about what you guys were doing at Carlisle? Because sure. you mentioned raising multiple funds, but I'd love to talk about like the types of investments that you were doing, the fundraising, and just what you guys were actually doing there. So when we left Morgan Stanley, we were doing investments in power generation, oil and gas, midstream assets, very heavy on the natural resources. So we wanted to do that at Carlisle as well. Uh, we were fairly unique in that we could do a number of different things with the Morgan Stanley balance sheet. We could be lenders, we could take sort of risk across the capital structure within reason, but funds don't work that way. You've got to pick a very narrow niche sort of area. So in a twist of really crazy fate, the fundraisers at Carlisle said, you know what we should do? We should call yourselves the Carlisle Energy Mezzanine Opportunities Fund. That's a mouthful, right? Or CMOF. <laughs> and the word mezzanine was in there because the previous year, 2009, was the highest year for mezzanine fundraising ever. What does mezzanine mean? Mezzanine just literally means it's like the, the level between senior debt and subordinated equity structures. And the interesting thing was we printed our documents with mezzanine on there. We go out and have our first set of meetings and people were like, that's so 2009. We're not investing in mezzanine anymore. <laughs> and we're like, oh no, we can't change our name. But really what we did was we were, we were attempting to do something where we could invest across the capital structure. And it actually played out exactly that way, which is among the first few investments, we did a subordinated debt piece. We did a senior first lien piece of paper at 14%. Wow. We did an equity deal where we bought a refinery, purely straight up common equity. So it was really gave us a lot of flexibility. We raised our first fund and then that was deployed. We raised our second fund. So all in, we were managing about $4.5 billion for Carlisle. When then, you know, about 2018 timeframe, I think the three of us decided that you know, we sort of didn't want to be part of the large private equity powerhouse that Carlisle had become. I mean, we, we joined before it went public. And obviously, it's a great institution, really smart people, but it was getting institutionalized. And from our standpoint, we just felt that it was probably time to start thinking about next steps. And what we did know was the three of us really loved working together. And we also sort of said we wanted to start doing something more meaningful and something more impactful, where we could all sort of say, hey, ultimately, especially now looking looking back, I'm, I'm not terribly thrilled with the sort of ecological footprint that our investments made with oil and gas drilling. No judgment on it. But to me, I personally didn't wake up every morning and say, yes, we fracked another well. You know, that wasn't, wasn't, I wasn't fired up for that. So I think the three of us, and that sort of laid the groundwork for eventually the transition into healthcare. I knew nothing about project finance. In the first five minutes of this episode, you explained project finance to me in a way that completely makes it all make sense. And again, I was even working my first year, I was in a joint venture between investment banking and sales and trading. where We were doing like tolling defeasance projects and I was attached to the power of natural resources vertical. And I knew nothing about this entire entity that's so interconnected with that. Thank you guys so much. This has been phenomenal. And for those of you who haven't listened to last week's episode, we actually get into healthcare private equity investing uh, with Julian Raul. So if you're interested in that, um, check that out. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please leave us a written five-star review. It would mean the world to us and we will see you next time. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to The Wall Street Skinny. We are more than just a podcast. So follow us on TikTok and Instagram at The Wall Street Skinny. If you're a visual learner, we have content that will help get you up the curve from valuation to Excel to Bond Fundamentals 101. And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe to our YouTube channel where we will be publishing in-depth tutorials on all this and more. 